Amen. How we doing? All right. We're waking up, apparently. Uh, my name is Chris. I'm one of the pastors here. Glad you're with us today. Uh, real quickly, I would love to draw your attention to uh, one of these annual reports. It should be by a seat close to you. Um, and now I'll read the whole thing to you. I'm kidding. Um, no, I just want to, to just highlight a couple things in here and some things that maybe won't stand out as clearly, uh, but just to make sure you, you know um, kind of what we, we have in here. So uh, obviously there's some information, a little letter from me, some great testimonies. Uh, I hope you'll read those in, in particular. Um, and then just some, some general information. As you look at the financial sap, snapshot, uh, it does highlight a specific like church uh, planting kind of giving too, but wanted to also highlight kind of our total missions giving altogether, which includes stuff given to directly church planting initiatives as well as overseas mission partnership, partnerships, uh, short-term trips and things that we send people on uh, support-wise like that, uh, as well as some local initiatives. We partner with some ministries here locally as well. We gave like a little bit over $68,000 uh, in total to, to missions in 2019, which is over 12% of our income for the year. So I think that's encouraging to know. Uh, also on the attendance, uh, you, you'll notice that, hey, it looks like we, we got a little smaller since last fall, of, well, fall of 2018 to fall of 2019, and that is true. However, I also want to point out, too, that you see the numbers from the summer, uh, which continue to grow kind of in the numbers of folks who are kind of here throughout the year. Uh, and also, just so you know, the last three weeks have been uh, over 500 folks in attendance on Sunday. So, so we're, we're not discouraged by that at all. Clearly, the Lord is at work. The, last year was a year of a lot of turnover, and uh, we live in a transient town, and, and we just kind of embrace that. So, uh, But anyway, we're grateful for uh, what the Lord is doing, uh, the people who are meeting Jesus, uh, and, and the way that we're growing together in Him. And so hopefully, uh, as you read through that, that'll be encouraging for you. Uh, just so you know, too, our budget for 2020, uh, we walked through some financial things last year, but ended up with a surplus at the end of the year. We, we have set that budget basically at the exact same total threshold as last year. It's kind of reshuffled around to where some of that money is allocated, but, but essentially we're kind of rolling with the same budget into 2020 as we had last year, which was around, uh, at least last year initially, we, uh, which was around $565,000. So, so that is just some information for you business-wise to know. Uh, Ash Wednesday, uh, Wednesday night, this Wednesday, 6.30, hope you'll uh, join us as we kind of begin our, 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 our journey to uh, the cross and the empty tomb in the season of Lent and uh, look forward to, to that time. Well, uh, it will come to no surprise to any of you, if you know me or if you've been here like before today, uh, that I am a huge sports fan. I, I love sports. Uh, probably much of my love and admiration for sports, and, and no, I'm not going to talk about the Chiefs today. I, that, I'll save you from that. Uh, probably much of that uh, love comes from uh, the admiration I have from athletes, for athletes who can do things that I cannot even comprehend being able to do. Uh, for example, my son, my, who's a senior at Bloomington North High School, as a swimmer, and yesterday his team won sectionals at Columbus North. Uh, first time that his uh, Bloomington North has done that since 2013, so first time for his team. Uh, he dropped uh, his personal best times in both of his events and placed and contributed to that, and it was exciting to watch. And, and that's something that I cannot do, right? Like, I have this unfortunate reflex when I put my face in water, I inhale, <laughs> which in case if you didn't know you, that's not what you're supposed to do uh, when you swim. So, so is, is, I'm, I admire people who could do things that I cannot do that I, I'm just blown away uh, by, by their ability. But, you know, with the really, uh, you know, the elite athletes that we, we watch, some of us, right, uh, the, it's beyond the sheer athletic talent is kind of the reality that some of those world-class athletes stand out even above their peers because in the, the most crucial moments with all of the pressure bearing down on them and kind of against all odds, they're able to kind of come through in the clutch, so to speak, right? They, they come through when it's all on the line and, and the odds are kind of stacked against them. You, you think about football, right? It's, 
It's the fourth quarter. There's less than two minutes to go. The team is down four. The ball's on their own nine-yard line. And then the quarterback comes in and orchestrates this just surgical, uh, you know, march down the field to, to get the game-winning touchdown with, you know, the, the, on the final play. Or baseball, right? It's two outs, bottom of the ninth. You're down two runs, two men on. And, and, and the, the slugger steps in and he's down quickly in the count down one strike away from the game being over, only to hit a home run, walk off win, right? Or, or basketball, right? This is Indiana after all, is it not? We're down by two to the evil number one ranked Kentucky Wildcats. Seconds left on the clock, right? Watford for the win. We at least still have that, right? We still have that. Um, <laughs> Those sorts of impossible moments, though, are, are, are where, our hero, where our heroes come through against all odds are, are why so many of us love sports, right? We, we love to watch. Those moments really serve in, in that moment to highlight the, the greatness of those athletes, like how they really are special. They really are great uh, at what they do. And when we witness those moments, especially if it's for, uh, you know, if it's a, an athlete we really admire or a team that we love, like, what do we do? We, we erupt with joy. With, with, with applause, with fist pumps, with shouting, right? We throw our hands in the air. And what does that have to do with Exodus? Nothing, really. Um, only this, that in Exodus chapter 14, the people of Israel find themselves facing a seemingly impossible situation. But that situation in the end only serves to highlight the greatness and the glory of God in saving his people. And God displays his saving power so that his greatness and his glory would be made known. And so that his people would worship him. And that's what we see as we dig into Exodus chapter 14, uh, verse 1, all the way to 15, 21. For our reading today, we'll be reading Exodus 14, 8 through 31. I invite you to turn there in your Bibles and uh, stand with me for the reading of God's words on page 56 in those Bibles on your row. And by the way, if you don't have a, a copy of the Bible for yourself, we do have free copies out at the connection table. We'd love to give one of those to you as a gift so you can have a copy of God's Word for yourself as well. Exodus 14, beginning in verse 8. Hear the word of the Lord. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army, and overtook them, encamped at the sea by Pihaharoth in front of Baal Zephon. I did it. Wow, amazing. Uh, sorry, forgive me. Uh, when Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel uh, lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly, and the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, it is, because there are no, is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. The Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. When I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen, then the angel of, the, of God, who was going before the host of Israel, moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. 
And then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove back the sea by a strong east wind all night, and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. And in the morning watch, the Lord in the pillar of fire and, and of cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea, that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen, all of the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea, not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, so the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we we thank you for this time to gather together. We thank you that you are great, that you are glorious. Lord, that, that you, in your sovereign love for us, expose our inability. Expose our inability to do what only you can do. So that we might see you for who you are. We might see our need for you. We might see your glory. We might see your, your grace. And we might... We might cling to you in faith and we might worship you with our lives. Lord, that's our prayer today, that you would enable us by your spirit, by your grace, to be your people who live for you, who live songs of worship before you in our lives. pray this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. You may have a seat. Throughout the, uh, the events here in this passage, God is exposing our helplessness that he might show his own glory and power so that his people would worship him. Uh, so let's unpack that as we take a, a closer look at each a- aspect of that truth that I just said. The first part, the first aspect, God exposes our helplessness. So just to recap here, 430 years before this moment, famine had led the people of Israel into Egypt. In those days, the people of Israel numbered 70 persons, we're told at the beginning of Exodus. But over time, God was faithful to his promise to Abraham to grow him and multiply him into a great nation. And so they multiplied greatly. And out of fear, one Pharaoh began, began a pattern of oppressing the Israelites and, and forcing them to work as slaves. But they continued to multiply. And the ruler of Egypt declared that all newborn Israelite boys should be thrown into the Nile river, drowned, destroyed. And God rescued Moses through, from those waters of death as he was placed in and taken out of a basket. Literally, the word in the original language, the original Hebrew here, is the same word that's used for Noah's ark. Moses, like Noah, was preserved from death by water in an ark. And God called and sent Moses to Pharaoh to, to lead his people, to call Pharaoh to let his people go, that they might go and serve him. Pharaoh refused. God hardened his heart. And the showdown between God and Pharaoh, the showdown between the one true God and the false gods of Egypt began. God sent a series of 10 plagues to expose the emptiness of those false gods and, and to display that he alone is the Lord. In the final plague, God told Moses to instruct the people to take a lamb for every household, to kill that lamb, to take some of the blood from the lamb and put it on the doorframe and the tops and the sides of the doorframe, telling him the people that when God would come to execute his judgment and taking the life of every firstborn in the land of Egypt, that he would see the blood on the doorframes and he would pass over his people, enabling them to escape his just judgment. So they obeyed. 
And God carried out that final plague, bringing death to every home in the land of Egypt. And finally, Pharaoh relented. And he told Moses to take the people, their livestock, and go. And as they left, they obeyed God's instructions to them to ask of their Egyptian neighbors for for silver and gold and clothing. And the Egyptians gave them whatever they asked for. And so the people plundered the Egyptians as they departed with haste. And this fulfilled God's promise all the way back in Genesis 15 to Abraham. Genesis 15, verse 13 and 14 says, Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions." And this is where we pick up in Exodus 14. The people are continuing to move away from Egypt. They've been redeemed. They've escaped Pharaoh once and for all, but not really. But not really. God hardens Pharaoh's heart again to come after Israel, to pursue them. After all, this, this was a bitter loss for Pharaoh, a, a bitter loss for Egypt economically. But even more, it was a bitter loss for Pharaoh's power and pride. And so he comes after them, determined to have revenge and to return Israel back to their chains in Egypt. Pharaoh and his army, they come armed to the teeth, bearing down on the Israelites, and they have them pinned down, right? The army's on one side and the Red Sea is on the other side. There is nowhere to go. Fourth down, a hundred yards to go, a half second on the clock, and they're down by 10. You know, there's no hope here. At least that's how it it seems and it looks from the Israelite perspective. And if it was only the Israelites facing that situation, that would be the reality. There would be no hope because they are absolutely helpless to save themselves. There are a bunch of families out there with children, with, with the elderly, with livestock. This is not an army. They're not an army out there. Just a bunch of families with all of their stuff trying to make a quick escape. And they're helpless on their own. The world's strongest army, the most powerful army in the world with advanced weaponry is bearing down on them rapidly. They're helpless on their own. But that's just it. They're not on their own. The Lord is with them. Literally, he is with them, leading them in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. They've seen God's mighty hand at work in a series of 10 plagues. They've they've just experienced his saving grace in the Passover. They have witnessed time and time again God's faithfulness to his word, God's faithfulness to his promises. And yet their immediate response here when this new trouble presents itself is to cry out to God, but not to cry out to God in prayer. To cry out to God in complaining. Verse 11 and 12, chapter 14. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians, for it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. But before we pick on the Israelites, is this not how you and I tend to respond as well? Are you not also so often blinded by your immediate circumstances, by what's right in front of your face, that you forget about God's power, about his faithfulness, about his presence with you in in that moment of despair? Every time, you know, and we'll, we'll see it again, uh, every time when we see the Israelites struggling and responding wrongly, we should remember that they're holding up a mirror for you and I to look at, right? We're, seeing, we're staring into a mirror and seeing our own reflection. We do the same thing. We get overwhelmed by the circumstances we face, whether it's relational conflict that we see no way out of, whether it's, you know, sickness, disease, Loss, grief, anxiety, depression. We get so overwhelmed that all we can see is our hardship, our struggle, 
All we can see is we're about to get crushed. That's all we can see. And we forget that God is with us. Not in a pillar or cloud or fire, but he's with us in the person and work of the Holy Spirit if you're in Christ. The, the Holy Spirit who dwells within the Christian. God is with you. The same Spirit that rose Jesus from the grave dwells within you. God is with you. You're not alone. And Jesus promises that he will surely be with you. Always. To the end of the age. The immediate circumstances are not the only reality. If you're in Christ, God is with you. But there's more to the situation here in Exodus 14. In verse, verse 2, verse 2, we didn't read that. But if you look there, God instructs Moses. God tells Moses to tell the people to turn back. What is he doing? What, turn, turn back? Like God goes on to tell Moses what he's about to do in hardening Pharaoh's heart to come after them. And God leads his people, not exactly on the most direct route, away from trouble and harm's way. But instead, he sort of has them kind of wandering in circles into what appears to be a trap of his own making. Except it's not really a trap. Because he's God and he's sovereign. And we'll talk more about that in a minute. But, But God leads his people into this position where they're pinned down between Pharaoh's army and the Red Sea. Why would he do this? Why would he do this? The answer that the Lord keeps giving in the passage is so that he would have glory over Pharaoh. That his glory would be known. That all would know that he is the Lord. That all would know that. But, but it's even more personal for the people of God. God does this that they might see their helplessness apart from him. And at the same time see his all-sufficient glory and power, and grace. And God does this to show his people that he is their God. He is their Lord. They are his people. He does this that they might continue to depend on him for for everything, for their rescue, for their life, for everything. In much the same way, the the hardships that we face are, are an invitation for us to see our need for the Lord to press in, to trust, to depend upon Him for our strength, Him for our provision, Him for our hope. To see our need and depend on Him for everything. Especially and specifically when it comes to the hardship of sin. God exposes our sin to show us our helplessness. That it might show us our desperate need for His rescue. That He provides for us in the person and work of of his son, Jesus Christ. And that's the first aspect that we see here is that God exposes our helplessness, which leads to the second aspect of that truth I mentioned earlier, that God shows his own glory and power. God exposes our helplessness that he might show his own glory and power. And God is about to use this seemingly impossible situation to highlight his incomprehensible glory and power. Like those desperate situations that uh, we see superstar athletes uh, encounter as the game is, is winding down. Right? The, the situation that the Israelites are, are in only, seems, only serves to really magnify the greatness of God. That He alone is sufficient. He alone deserves glory. Time and again, God has promised to deliver His people from Egypt uh, and out, of, out from under the oppression of Pharaoh. And that is exactly what he is going to do. That's exactly what he's going to do. Throughout Exodus 14, God repeatedly tells Moses that he, he, God has hardened Pharaoh's heart, that he might get glory over him, and that the Egyptians should know that he is the Lord. At no point in this sequence of events is God not in control. Do you understand that? He is, he is conducting, he, he's orchestrating all of this. This is not reckless. This is not risky. He's sovereign. At no moment is God not in complete control over every piece and part that is going on here. This is his story, and, and this chapter is reaching its climax. 
So what does God do? God tells Moses exactly what he's going to do in verses 16 and 17, and then he does it. The pillar of cloud moves from before the people, behind them, in between the Egyptians and the Israelites, kind of creating this, this barrier as, as God prepares to go to work. Right? And then, uh, you know, Moses in verse 21, he stretches out his hand over the sea and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land and the waters were divided. The people went into the sea on dry ground. The waters are like a wall on both sides of them as they walk through the Red Sea. And so let's just be clear. This is a plain reading of the text, right? People want to you know, hypothesize, well, you know, maybe it was really shallow there and they were able to kind of walk through and, it, you know, there's just like knee deep and, you know, dry ground, whatever. Uh, no, like God's word doesn't leave open any other possibility than the reality that this was a mighty act of God. That this was a miracle. God parted the mighty waters of the Red Sea so that his people could cross through them. Walls of water, you know, above them on both sides. And they walk on dry land. A plain reading of the text leaves no room for any other conclusion than that. But don't miss the significance of what is happening here. Once again, God is bringing salvation through an act of new creation. Think about it. This is, this is the story of creation all over again. And, and I owe this insight to, to commentary uh, from Tim Chester. But, but it, it, Genesis 1-9, right? God creates land. How does he do that? He separates the waters. He separates the waters to create dry land. God separates the waters here in Exodus by a strong wind. Later in Exodus 15, 8 in the Song of Moses, which is the, the song of worship, just kind of giving God praise for his rescue here in, in the Exodus and the parting of the Red Sea. Uh, it, this, this wind is referred to as a blast and a breath. All three of those references, strong wind, blast, breath, all three of those references are all the same word in the original language. And it's also the same word that's used for the Spirit. The wind blowing over the waters here echoes the work of the Spirit hovering over the waters of creation in Genesis 1-2. It's, it's the same thing we see in the, in the story of Noah. And again, Tim Chester, this is how he explains it in his commentary. He says, floating on an endless sea of, of watery judgment, Noah had no future. But God remembered Noah and all the wild animals and the livestock that were with him in the ark. And he sent a wind over the earth and the waters receded. Genesis 8, 1. God rescues his people from death by sending his spirit wind to repeat creation as he separates the waters to create dry ground. But when the Egyptian armies try to follow suit and, and pursue the Israelites through the Red Sea, the water closes back in over them. In contrast to the Israelites who walk safely across on dry ground, we're told in verse 21, or 28 that not one of the Egyptians who tried to pursue them survived. Salvation takes the form of new creation, but judgment takes the form of uncreation. Water and land unseparate, like you see in the flood, in the judgment uh, with Noah, as you see here with the Egyptians. This, this sort of judgment from the hand of God, it may be hard for us to read about, right? God just kills and destroys all those people. This, this seems harsh. But think about what happens. The men of Egypt are drowned for drowning the baby boys of Israel. Even more, they're drowned at dawn. Twice it re refers to this. They're drowned at dawn in the morning watch, verse 24, when the morning appeared, verse 27. They're drowned at the time when the Egyptian sun god, their most powerful god, Ra, should be rising to their aid. And then that's the moment that they're defeated and that the judgment falls on them. The Lord, Yahweh, I am, the one true God 
told Moses this. Verse 18, he says, And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. God's judgment was a sign that he alone is Lord. And his judgment was just. It was a just judgment. At creation, in the flood, and again in Exodus, God conquered chaos. God brought life out of death. Judgment takes the form of uncreation, creation going in reverse, but God brought salvation out of judgment. He brought life out of death, recreating his people from the waters of death. God does this again in the book of Joshua. As, the, as God's people prepare to enter into the promised land, he, he parts the waters of the Jordan River. He leads his people into the promised land. He does it again in 2 Kings chapter 2, verse 7 through 14, when Elijah and Elisha crossed through the Jordan on dry ground. In all of these accounts, God is setting up a pattern. And this is how we, we see it kind of unfold and explained in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah 43, 16 through 19. Thus says the Lord, who makes a way in the sea, a path in the mighty waters, who brings forth chariot and horse, army and warrior. They lie down, they cannot rise. They are extinguished, quenched like a wick. Remember not the former things, nor consider the things of old. Behold, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. Isaiah here in, in, this, in this passage, he's reminding God's people about what God did to deliver them in the Exodus. But then God essentially speaks through him and says, forget about that. Forget about that. I'm going to do it again, but in a bigger and better way. In a bigger and better way. Throughout Isaiah, the prophet speaks again and again about a new exodus that is coming. And that new exodus is described as an act of, of new creation. And then Jesus shows up and he's baptized in the Jordan River. Water that repeatedly symbolizes judgment throughout the pages of Scripture. Jesus comes and he's immersed in the waters of the Jordan River. He immerses himself in judgment. In Mark 10, 38, Jesus, in a really fun conversation with a couple of his disciples who think that they're up for the task of, of taking the cup that he can have, uh, he describes his coming death as a baptism. As a baptism. Water is a symbol of judgment. But you see, the cross of Christ is the reality of that judgment. At the cross... The waters of judgment enclosed upon Jesus. At his death, darkness fell upon the land. It's a moment of uncreation. Creation in reverse at the cross. God pulled creation apart around Jesus as he died and he was buried in the tomb. But, but on the third day, he was raised. He was raised and God brought life out of death. He brought salvation out of judgment. He brought light out of darkness. And all those stories of rescue from water, they're, they're building up to that moment at the cross and the empty tomb where Jesus brings his people through the waters of death by his finished work. God unravels creation there in order to recreate his people through faith in Christ. Imagine that you're there at the Red Sea. You've crossed through to the other side and you see the waters coming back down on all of the Egyptian army. Imagine the sheer horror of what you witness as every single one of them is destroyed, killed in that moment. People, horses, chariots thrown about, dragged down to the very depths of that sea. And then think about this, far worse than anything you can imagine about that is what Jesus himself stepped into on the cross. Far worse. And he, there he was willingly cast into the waters of judgment in your place so that you would be able to walk through on dry ground in him. 
In the Exodus, God shows his own glory and his power. Even more at the cross of Christ, God shows his own glory. He shows his own power. He shows his own love and his grace in bringing salvation through judgment. And that leads us into this last aspect of of this truth here, that, that God exposes our helplessness that he might show us his own glory and power so that his people would worship him. That's the third aspect. God invites and enables our worship. Following this, this great act of salvation uh, through judgment, this is the response of, of Israel as they, as they reach uh, the, the other side, the eastern side, safe and sound, and look back on the judgment of God as it unfolded before their eyes. Look at verse 31. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, so the people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. They put their trust in God. And then they sing. They sing. When we gather together to sing, we're not doing anything that's weird. We're doing what's natural when you are blown away by God's glory and his greatness and his goodness. We sing. I'm not going to go into too much detail, but, you know, when God creates the first woman and brings her to the first man, he sings. Right? It's a worship because he's no longer alone. This is flesh of my flesh, bone of my bone. Right? God delivers his people here. And what do they do? Exodus 15, they sing. They, they, they erupt in joyful praise. The song of Moses. And if this is how the Israelites respond after they saw God deliver them in the Exodus... And how much more, how much more should that be our response as we consider what, what Christ has done for us in his, in his, in his cross and his empty tomb? The deliverance that he has provided us, not from slavery in a foreign land, but slavery to sin and death. He set us free. He was buried in the water so that we might walk through on dry land. How much more should we respond with trust, with faith, with joyful singing, not just as we gather together here, but with our lives? But there's a reality here that just like the Israelites could see God's mighty hand of deliverance in the Passover and, and, and then moments later see the Egyptians bearing down on them and completely forget it, or just like we're going to see uh, as we continue in Exodus, very shortly, in the very next passages, in fact, right? They're going to see, they've just experienced this mighty hand of God's deliverance. And immediately they're going to be like, well, now what are we supposed to drink? What are we supposed to eat? Right? They just forget about it. We're just like that. We're quick to forget how great Christ's rescue of us is. We're quick to forget his grace, quick to forget all of his promises. We're quick to get overwhelmed in the circumstances of our day-to-day lives and forget that his presence is with us. It can be easy on Sunday morning, right, to, to, to say, yes, how great is the salvation that I have in Christ. Let us sing, right? It can be easy here because we're accustomed that that's what we do here. That's what we remember here. But what about tomorrow morning? What about when you get into that argument with your spouse? What about when your kid completely goes ballistic at Target? Or what about when you get a bad report from the doctor? What about when you get the phone call that someone you dearly love is gone? When suffering and tragedy come your way, it's so easy to forget his glory. It's so easy to forget his grace. It's so easy to forget his great rescue and his presence with you. What are we to do? How are we to respond in those moments? The words of Moses here give us some direction. Back in verses 13 and 14, this is what Moses says. He said to the people, 
Fear not. Stand firm. And see the salvation of the Lord for which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you. And you have only to be silent. Fear not. Stand firm. See the salvation of the Lord. And be silent. Be still. When circumstances overwhelm us, when suffering comes, or when we feel overwhelmed in our struggle against sin, how do we respond? Well, we, we shouldn't respond by pretending that our sin isn't a big deal. But that's what some of us do. We shouldn't respond by saying that we don't deserve God's judgment, like, oh, I'm better than that guy. That's not true. The, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. We shouldn't pretend that everything's okay. What we should do is this. We remind ourselves that we have already been pulled down to death and judgment has already engulfed us in the person and work of Jesus Christ. His death was your death. His resurrection is your newness of life. You need not fear death and judgment because of Jesus if you put your hope in him. Because you've already passed through the waters in Christ. Don't forget, remember that the Lord will fight for you. And in fact, he has already fought for you and he has already won for you. Jesus took your sin willingly and died in your place the death you deserve, suffering the judgment that you deserve. And his righteousness now covers you. Dry ground. He's already fought for you. He's already won, so you don't need to fear. So fear not and stand firm. Like you and I, we, we may not literally be facing an army. There's, there's no literal army maybe bearing down on us. Uh, but we have an enemy who no less is relentlessly seeking to devour us and destroy us. Apostle Paul says like this in Ephesians 6, 12. He says, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Our enemy is Satan, right? And our battle is spiritual. Satan seeks to tempt us to, to want to return to being a slave, right? We had it better in Egypt, Better than this, right? That, that's his temptation. To lure us back. To seek to pull us back into the struggle that we just walked out of. And so we must stand firm. We must stand firm. Paul instructs Ephesians 6, 13. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Our armor and our weaponry is the gospel. That's what we fight with. Satan seeks to tell you that you can't resist him, that you belong to him. And you respond with the gospel saying, no, sucker, right? I don't belong to you. I belong to Jesus, right? He's the one who died for me. He's the one who was raised for me. He's the one who's bought my life and set me free. I belong to him, not to you. His righteousness covers me. And so I will stand firm and I'll walk in that newness of life that he has secured for me. And I'm not going to listen to your lies. We seek to remember our salvation in Christ and, and to be still, to rest in it, to make our home, our refuge in, in that rescue. Day by day, moment by moment, we must seek to remind ourselves of Christ, of what he's done for us, of who he is. To preach the gospel to ourselves. What do I mean by that? This is what I mean by that. Struggles come, right? They're coming. They're, by the end of the day, struggles will come to you today. They will, they will seek to define you in some way. And we must pause in that moment and remember, no, this does not define me. 
This temptation, this struggle, this sin does not define me. This argument does not define me. I am defined by the finished work of Christ. I'm not my sin. I'm not my struggle. I'm not my suffering. I'm God's beloved child. I'm the righteousness of God. These are his promises that he tells you in his word. His spirit, the same spirit that raised Jesus from the grave. Did you hear me? The same spirit that that raised Jesus from the grave dwells within you, Christian. And we reorient our hearts and our minds to remember what what Christ has done, who we are now in him, and, and to seek to live in the fullness of that reality. One of, the, one of the great gifts, one of the great helps that I think God has given us in that effort is baptism. Is the gift of baptism. In the act of baptism, we are remembering that Jesus entered the waters of death. He entered the waters of death on his cross. And then he passed through to new life in his resurrection. And, and we in our baptism, we, we follow suit, right? We, we reenact that. We act out in our baptism, Christ's death and his resurrection. Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 10, 1 and 2, he says that the Exodus was a baptism. And the Israelites passed through the waters of death and came out to freedom. And that's what happened at the cross and in the resurrection of of Christ. We passed through the waters of judgment and we came out to freedom. Tim Chester says it like this. He says, on Good Friday, we were were slaves under the authority of sin and facing judgment. On Easter morning, we were a liberated people, free from sin, free from judgment. Christ passed through the waters of death on our behalf. So our baptism is the pledge and promise that we are liberated people on the other side of judgment. We walk through life with our judgment behind us. Paul encourages us with that same truth in in Romans 6.4. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life with judgment in the rearview mirror behind us, gone. Our baptism serves as this powerful symbol that we have been identified with Christ, that that his rescue, his, his death was our death. His resurrection was our newness of life. We share in that. And so we can look back on that moment of our baptism and remember what Christ has done. Remember that we were publicly identified with that and treasure that. We can rest in that, stand firm in that, and we need not fear. And friends, when you anchor your life, you anchor your life moment by moment, not just on Sundays, moment by moment, day by day, constantly redirecting your hearts and your minds back onto Christ, back onto all he's done in his life and death and resurrection to save you. When you do that, you cannot help but sing. Even if you have a terrible voice. Because it's not about your musical ability. It's about his glory. You cannot help but sing. But I don't really like music. You cannot help but sing. You know, there's a reality sometimes, and I don't think everybody has to worship the same way, right? But if if there's the inconsistency in your life that at the football game, you know, I'm all in, you know, the baseball, you know, the rock concert, your favorite band, you're singing along and you're, you're jumping around, but you can't respond in worship before God, that might be a problem. Now, hey, if your demeanor's the same all the way through and, and you're, you're worshiping out of your heart, like, not everybody has to be my wife, for example, but, but you know, like, she's who, who she is, right? But we should be responding. And not just in our singing. It's not just the, the songs of singing, but singing with our lives. 
Your entire life increasingly becomes a song of worship before the Lord who loved you and rescued you. God exposes our helplessness that he might show his glory and power so that we might worship him. That's what he does in the Exodus. But even more, that's what he has done in the person and work of Christ through his cross, through his resurrection. You and I are utterly helpless. Utterly helpless to save ourselves. You cannot get your life back together enough. You cannot straighten yourself, get your act together enough to make it okay. You deserve judgment. You deserve death. You cannot fix that. But he, ha- he can and he has. You're utterly helpless, but God has shown his glory, his power, his love, his grace, and his willingness to enter in, to intercede, to die for you, to be raised for you, to fight for you, and to win for you. Look upon his cross, look upon his empty tomb, remember what he's done, and let it move you to sing. Let it move you to, to embrace Jesus in faith. If you, if you haven't yet done that, that's the first step. To embrace him, to trust him, to put your hope in him. Let it move you to be identified with Christ in his death and resurrection publicly in baptism. And let it move you to sing with your whole life. Live before him to see his greatness, to see his glory. And increasingly, Live your life before him as a song of praise, a song of worship. Each week we we gather, we come to the Lord's table and we share in his supper that we might remember what Jesus has done for us. That we might remember and be renewed in our covenant with him. We remember that the Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, he took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. May this meal enable us to see our helplessness so that we might see his glory and power and so that that might move us to worship him. Believers, you're invited to come and share in this meal as we continue to sing here in a few moments. We, we take the meal by breaking off a piece of the bread, dipping in the cup. We offer juice and wine to take as your conscience leads you. Wine is in the glasses marked with twine. Uh, if you're not a believer in Christ, this is a, it's a meal that's reserved for Christians. It's a symbol of what, what Christ has done to rescue us. But you don't want the symbol without first receiving that rescue. And so this is the invitation, the opportunity for you to see what Christ has done in his life, death, and resurrection. And to put your faith in him, to take him in faith. There'll be pastors and prayer responders here in the back of the room. If you put your hope in Christ, we'd love to hear about that and pray with you and, and encourage you in that. If you're going through anything, you want prayer for anything, we'd love to visit with you. love to pray with you about what's going on in your life. But let us continue to worship. Let us continue to sing, both here and with our lives. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we, we are, are so grateful for your love, your sovereign love, that where we are completely unable, we have no ability to do what we need to accomplish our rescue, to save ourselves from, from judgment, from death, from slavery to sin. Where we are helpless, Lord, you are, are gloriously able and gloriously willing. And you have entered in through your son. Lord Jesus, you have lived for us. You've died for us. You've been raised for us. You, you entered in. You plunged yourselves into the depths of the waters of judgment that we might walk through on dry ground. Help us, Lord, to remember, to remember, and when we forget to keep reminding ourselves, to keep reminding each other in community of who you are, of what you've done, to see your glory, that we might sing for you, sing for you your praises that you deserve. Pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.